What's amazing is uh, another mentor of mine, his name is Dr. Gary Burge. Um, he's a scholar, he used to be at Wheaton, now he's at Calvin. But Dr. Gary Burge said, you aren't somebody's rabbi until you've disrupted them. If you are a safe rabbi, they will not call you a rabbi. But a great rabbi will disrupt you and remind you and point you to the more truer reality about who God is and what God is all about. I love, love, love. And as I was sitting there just thinking about, man, he had to go to Samaria. I just want you to know that place where Jesus went to have that drink of water with that Samaritan woman, it still exists today. It's actually at the bottom of a chapel that literally um, you have to walk down these stairs and basically a three iron away is like a refugee camp and you can literally like go into this chapel, walk down these stairs and I have, literally last time I was there I brought Palestinian soldiers, like non-practicing Muslim, Arab Palestinian soldiers, because they lived in the UN refugee camp, I brought them there, read John 4, and we brought up water, and it tastes so much better than Dasani. It, and like, we started talking, and there's this amazing holy experience where two of the three guys gave their life to Christ at the same well where Jesus encountered this woman. So it's just like, it's unbelievable. Every time I think of John 4, I think of these Palestinian soldiers, and the only redeeming fact for me of Facebook is that I gotta keep in contact with these guys, which is just amazing. But I say this to say, this isn't just something that Jesus had to do. If you go to Acts 1.8, some of the last things and words that Jesus says, says that the Spirit of God is gonna come upon you, and you are gonna be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And the high school age disciples, because that's how old these disciples were, one was probably junior high, 10 of them were probably high school, and Peter was probably college age. And like Jesus is instructing these apprentices, these disciples, these Talmudim, that hey, just wait. Because when the spirit of God comes upon you, you are gonna actually be my witnesses. And Jerusalem was the place that was familiar. We all have a familiar place, don't you? It's like where we live. Some of you, you know, you, you live around the area. My familiar place was Camarillo, California, 63,000. It was 72 degrees, 305 days a year. It was perfect, perfect place to grow up. Soccer moms and minivans and traveling soccer. I mean, that, that was like our, that was my familiar. And for, the, for those disciples, they had a familiar. But like the spirit of God is gonna consistently move us outside our safety, comfort. It's literally gonna kind of disrupt us into moving out and we're gonna go to Judea. And what's Judea? Judea for those disciples would have been the people they thought were less than. Now, they didn't have the best schools. It wasn't like Jerusalem. They didn't have a temple. I mean, it's like Fresno. I'm sorry if you're from Fresno. If, it's, if you're from Fresno, then it's like Dinuba. And if you're like, if you know Dinuba, it's like Reedling. You know what I mean? I'll just keep, we all have a less than, right? And some of you are like, I live in Fresno. Fres yes, baby, Fres yes. Now, for some of us, like we have this. We, we have these people that we think are less than. If you don't think so, just, just find yourself just walking and going through 
SFO or San Jose standing in and watching how people talk to a TSA agent. Watching how people just with passive aggressive behavior talk down to someone. And let's be honest, we all have this. And the Spirit of God is going to come upon us and we are with power are going to bear witness to what Jesus is already up to in the people that we think are less than. But it doesn't stop there. He's going to then take us to Samaria. And who's Samaria? It's not the people that we think are less than. It's the people we can't stand. Ohio State fans for me. Can't stand them. That's right. They need Jesus. Green Bay Packer fans. They need Jesus. You know, oh, I lost the room right there. Bunch of Aaron Rodgers fans. I know he's from the Bay Area. But here's the thing. We have people in our life that we can't stand. Here's the crazy piece about Samarians. They were half Jewish, half Gentile. That's why the Hebrew people couldn't stand them. You know, they're American, but they're Democrat. They're American, but they're Republican. They're like us, but they're different. And somehow, in something about Samaria, the Jewish people were triggered, and I can't stand you. But God and Jesus are so awesome. The Spirit of God's going to come upon you, and you're literally going to bear witness to what I'm doing. In Judea, the people you think are less than. In Samaria, the people you can't stand. Oh, and it doesn't stop there. I'm actually going to take you to the ends of the earth, which is what? The people we have no desire to understand. I don't want to know what's going on in Syria. Refugees, immigration, all of the issues that are going on in our world. And sometimes we're like, I don't want to actually engage. 90s and 2000s, all of a sudden phobias started to pick up. Phobias of this person. I don't want to know their story. I don't want to know anything about it. I don't want to actually associate. I don't, I don't think less than of them. It's more than that. I can't say that. It's more than that. I just actually don't want to understand their existence. It's amazing, though, is we have a familiar place, Jerusalem, and Mount Hermon answer this question for me. In, Gen in, in Revelation, where does the story end? What's the location? It's like, no. what city is it? The New Jerusalem. So get this. We go from Jerusalem, and the Spirit of God is going to take us to Judea, less than, Samaria, can't stand, to the ends of the earth, no desire to understand, in preparation for our eternal homeland, where every tribe, tongue, and nation who have given their life to Jesus are going to be there, and it's going to be this amazing picture of the beloved community, which is incredible because this world, this life is practiced for the life to come. Just wonder how many of us are not wanting to practice. <laughs> because it's easier for us to stay in our familiar. I think what Eugene just so beautifully articulated was the invitation that Jesus models and the Spirit invites us to do this. But that's not what I'm going to talk about because he did it so well. What I'm going to talk about is, isn't it fascinating when like someone starts to talk about justice, you start to, it feels like seventh grade dance. You just start to move very awkwardly in the pews. And I was kind of watching you all. And there were moments in the back, you're like, man, this is, it's good. Where's, where's he going to go? What's he going to do? 
What's he gonna say? I like this guy a lot, but like, is he gonna, is he gonna, what's he gonna say? And I think what ends up happening is for some of us, like, we're so on edge about these conversations. My buddy Tyler Burns, he says, you know how to define justice? Justice is when I make your problem my problem. Because isn't that what God did? God made my sin problem his problem, sent his son, that's justice. And having the heart, the mind, the life that says, man, I just wanna engage. And so what I wanna do is I wanna talk about in a world where we find ourselves often opting out from going to the places that God is inviting, the spirit is leading, that Jesus showcased and modeled, because some other stuff is happening within us. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Esther 3, and we are actually gonna read this backwards. Not like in Hebrew backwards, but literally we're gonna start from the very end and we're gonna work our way to verse one. So if you have a Bible, start with me, Esther 3, verse 15. We'll just start with the last sentence. It says this, the king in Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. If you don't know where Esther is, it's page 399 in your little black Bible. If you don't have my Bible, I can't help you. I love how this, this, this verse just ends. The king and Haman sat down to drink. The king and his right-hand man sat down for a little old-fashioned end of the night. And how beautiful this writer says, but the entire city was bewildered. You ever have those moments you come home from work and you're like, what were they thinking? Really? Really? Like, sometimes you turn on the news, you're like, what is going on? I remember a number of years ago, I was uh, driving home from my grandparents' house. We were leaving their house and we were on the verge of moving to California from Grand Rapids, Michigan. It's an easy move. It's an easy, yes, Lord, I hear you. I'm leaving Grand Rapids to come to sunshine. And so I'm driving home. It's, it's a massive winter storm. And I'm driving in our little Honda Civic. My wife, nine-month-old behind me, Emerson, and we're driving, snow's coming down, when all of a sudden something hits our windshield. And I'm like, what, what was that? That wasn't snow. And I'm like playing with this thought in my mind when all of a sudden I realize, that was a chunk of ice. Somebody, Sarah, threw a chunk of ice at us. And what do I do in a Honda Civic in a snowstorm? I flip a U-turn, pull the car over, and I'm like, I see someone. Hey, I'll be right back, babe. And I cross two lanes of traffic. There's an embankment, and I think I can jump it. I find out midway through, I can't. I land in it. It's not just snow. It's snow over icy cold water up to my waist, which now makes me even more frustrated and I see these people running in this field towards the suburban neighborhood and I'm screaming. I see you! I'm calling 911! I'm gonna find you! And I take off running. And I run through a field. Now you're all like emailing DaveBirds at gmail.com. This guy's crazy. And I'm like running through these fields and I'm like, I'm gonna get these guys. I'm gonna get these guys. And I run into the suburban neighborhood and I, I've watched CSI so I know what to do. I like run to the middle of the street. I close my eyes and I'm like, just listen, just listen, just listen, just listen. Three doors down, I hear a garage door close. Terrible band, by the way. But I run to this house. I knock on the door. 
And I'm like, soaking wet pants, freezing, cortisol to the max. I'm knocking on this door and I can't wait because whatever's on the other side is going to get it. Old man opens the door and I was like, hey man, did someone just run in through the garage? I'd like to have a word with them. He looks down at my pants, looks up at me and goes, my grandson and his buddy just ran in. Hey, hey, can I, can I talk to him? Yeah, sure. Closes the door. Two minutes later, door opens, two sixth graders. Now, I'm a student ministry pastor at this moment. And I, they are like scared puppies looking down, not sure what to do. They can't even give me eye contact. It's like they, they did something and they just can't even look at me. And in this moment, soaking wet pants, cold, shivering, looking at innocent little sixth graders who did throw a chunk of ice at my car. But like, I'm sitting here and I felt like the Holy Spirit just say, who's the crazy one here? (laughs) So in this moment, I just look at these kids and I just say, hey, nice shot. And I walk away. (laughs) Back to my wife, a nine-month-old on the side of the road in a snowstorm. And in this moment, I'm like, what is going on? on. And then I think to myself, it's the last time I see my grandparents. My dad's got leukemia. I feel like I'm called to go to California, but I'm, I feel just all of this tension inside. On my way to my grandparents' house, the people who were going to buy our house backed out. And all of a sudden, this chunk of ice gave me the release and permission to channel all of my sadness, fear, anxiety, worry, and the sense of being completely out of control and expose my lack of trust in God. And it gave me a chance to run after sixth graders. I say all this is that there are moments in your day where you're sitting down for a drink, but your kids, your community, People who are far from God, I think are watching a little bewildered. Why are they doing that? Why are they saying that? What's really going on? Back to our story, which makes me wonder, why was the city so bewildered? Go up a couple verses. We'll go to verse 13. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces. This is King Xerxes with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so they would be ready for that day. The couriers went out, spurred on by the king's command. So why is the city bewildered? Because a decree has been basically sent out for permission for a massive genocide. And the city is going, what is going on? Which makes you wonder, how does a massive genocide actually get decided? How does like someday where you're like, you know what? Today, this is what we're going to do. We're going to destroy, kill, and annihilate all of one race of people. Go with me to verse 8. 
Look what verse 8 says. Then Haman, this is the king's right-hand man, said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. Which, quick time out, King Xerxes' grandfather was King Cyrus. Cyrus was known as the most tolerant king. Back in those days when you would actually take over a country, you would pillage. You would take some in grotesque evil and brutality would rape the women. So this is like something that you would do. When King Cyrus came in, he actually began to identify who are the leaders, what are the customs, actually made space for them. The first kind of like declaration of like human peace and like tolerance was led by Cyrus. It was written on the Cyrus cylinder and actually there's a replica of it in the UN. So when like nations are about to go past into battle, they have to walk past this first declaration of like human rights and tolerance that Cyrus had written many, many years ago. And so it's amazing that Haman's going, hey, hey, don't tolerate them. Forget what your grandfather showed you. Continues on, verse nine. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. And I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. So the king took his signet ring from his finger, gave it to Haman, son of Hamadathia. Here's the thing. If you ever come across a big word in the Old Testament, just read it quickly with authority and move on and everyone will believe you. Continues on and says this. The guy, the enemy of the Jews. Verse 11. Keep Haman. And do with the people as you please. So here's a guy who says, I, 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 these people, they're different. I less than, can't stand, no desire to understand. I just know we don't need to tolerate them. I'll even put up 10,000 of my own to help make this happen. Which begs the question, Why? Why would someone be like this? A number of years ago, I was speaking at a camp in Indiana, and it was a big building like this, and it was closed, the doors, the pre-service, and as I'm like walking up from my like little room, I see that there's these two massive clusters of students, and they are taunting one another. And I'm kind of walking up there, and I don't see any real adults, I just see about 200 students on one side, 200 students on another side, and they are just taunting each other. And not like the Jesus kind of taunting. And I'm walking up closer, trying to get curious, going, where's the leadership at this moment? They were all in a leaders meeting, but these students were there. And one group of students were going, boiler up, boiler up. And I'm like, what is going on? Another group of students that got closer, they're like, ah, you. Ah, uh, you, and I'm like, I didn't even know Purdue and Indiana had fans. And wow, man. And all of a sudden, they're literally in the wild attacking one another. The doors open, the band is up, they start to like begin to do some worship, and all of Indiana fans on this side, 
all of Purdue fans on this side, in the breaks of a song, they start taunting one another. And I have my message prepared, and I feel like God's like, um, yeah, this is one thing you got to actually address. So at the beginning of my message, I'm like, okay, here's what I want to do. If you're a Purdue fan, can you come up on stage? All of them. They're all on stage. If you're an Indiana fan, can you come on stage? Boom, all on stage. There's like three Butler fans and like nine Notre Dame fans. <laughs> the rest of them are there. And I said, okay, here's what I need you to do. I need you to choose one person, one representative, one representative of your prestigious institution to represent why, why your school is so great. So Purdue guy, Indiana guy, walk out. I walk up to Purdue guy, say, hey, can you give me one reason? One reason why your school is so great. <laughs> he just smirks because it's obvious. Drew Brees, Jim Everett, Bob Greasy, Kyle Orton, which is a big stretch. <laughs> like, we're quarterback you. We raise him up. We send him out. We win Super Bowls. I'm like... Okay, and all the Purdue fans are like, that's right. I go to IU, kid. IU goes, Assembly Hall. We have the best warm-ups in basketball. Isaiah Thomas, Steve Alford, Bobby Knight. I'm like, he did choke a player and throw a chair at a ref, but cool. And all the IU fans are like, that's right, we're the best. So then I walk back to Purdue, kid, and I said, okay, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to tell me one reason, one reason, one reason. Why IU is pretty special. And this kid like looks down and he starts to cry. And I'm like, oh buddy, it's okay, man. Like I just, it's a simple question. He goes, nah, man, you don't understand. And I'm like, no, I don't, because you haven't told me. He's like, my, my parents split up pretty early. So my grandparents raised me. My grandfather, um, he just means the world to me. And he was just this example. And he was just a good man. He, he taught me about Jesus. He took me to church. He, he's, the, he's my dad. He's my granddad. And then he got cancer. And um, we live outside of West Lafayette, um, where, where Purdue is. And the doctor said, we uh, can't help your grandfather. Um... So they sent him to Bloomington, Indiana to IU's medical school. And I prayed. A lot of my friends back here prayed. My church prayed. And God used those IU doctors and God's healing power. And it saved my grandfather. And so I'm forever grateful for IU. And all these IU kids were like, that's right. We save lives. It's like this beautiful moment that like high school students just ruin. <laughs> I walk up to the IU kid and, hey man, just one thing, one thing. Tell me one thing about Purdue. He's looking down. And no joke, from this side, someone yells out, where are you going to school next year? And I was like, did you hear that? Where are you going to school next year? And he just said, well, I want to be an engineer. And the best engineering school 
in Indiana is Purdue, and they offered me a full-ride scholarship. So I'm taking my talents to West Lafayette, and all of the Purdue fans are like, are you kidding me? And all of IU is like, we're the best engineering school ever, which is not true. But I have this moment where I just saw in one instance this group of students in this echo chamber taunting, you don't, we don't, we're better, you're not good enough. And then this moment of sheer humanity where they're like, your school actually helped save my grandpa's life and I'm actually gonna go to your school to be prepared for the world. It's fascinating because we're so comfortable in our familiar we're so comfortable with our less than, can't stand, no desire to understand, but the Spirit of God's like, I'm going to comfort you because I'm with you. I'm going to counsel you because that's what the Spirit does. I'm going to advocate for you to trust me in the disruption because we sang it. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. Not just in the familiar, but also in Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. But the question is, why does the right-hand man willing to bankroll a genocide. Fascinating. Watch this. Verse 1. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman's son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down, paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day, they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore, they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated. For he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, hear these words, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of just killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. So how did a genocide begin? Because one dude wouldn't kneel down? And one guy gets so triggered that he's like, I just can't kill him. I got to kill all of them. I mean, I keep thinking about this. Because I know none of you in this room are going to go leave this place and commit and lead a genocide. I'm not trying to say that. But you might flip a U-turn and run through an embankment, get soaking wet, freezing cold, pants filled of water, chasing sixth graders, and bewildering your wife, nine-month-old, and everybody else who sees you. And I find myself wondering, why does this happen? Which brings me back to Chicago. You know, it's springtime in Chicago when the orange barrels are in full bloom. They're everywhere. Well, you only have like four months to work on the pavement. That's all you got. And if you know Chicago well, you know that 
they are known for their potholes. They're everywhere. You're literally driving around them. They are everywhere. A number of years ago, I was driving downtown Chicago. I was playing with, I think, sports radio or something, and all of a sudden, I hit a pothole, and I knew right away. Pulled the car over. I have a flat tire, which is crazy because Chicago has a number, 311. If you dial, you can report a pothole, and if the pothole has been reported and they have not actually fixed the pothole in due time, they will take care of your damaged vehicle. So I'm praying, God, please, please, I'm praying for error, clerical error. And the lady picks up, she says, no, no, uh, this is the first time this pothole is being reported. And uh, I started asking her some questions, like, this is kind of crazy. You've got your own number dedicated to potholes. How many potholes are there? She's like, it's fascinating. Chicago Tribune just did a story. Do you know how many potholes we filled in from January 1st, 2018 to March 21st, 2018? I said, no. She's like, take a guess. I'm like, you tell me. She goes, take a guess. I say 25,000. She's like, nope. A little bit more. 40,000. Nope, a little bit more. 45,000? Nope, a little bit more. I'm like, man, please help me. <laughs> tell me. She says, 108,000. She said, if you go to our website, we have a pothole tracker, which I think is amazing, where they literally show their work. <laughs> She's insane. And I started like studying this, and I'm like, okay, wait, so let me get this straight. I'm talking to this woman, a teaching is like coming up, and I'm like, oh, wait, 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 wait. And those blue circles that are, that are in, that's where the pothole has been filled in appropriately, and they are checking off their work. And what's amazing to me is like, a pothole happens when water freezes and the asphalt doesn't have the elasticity, so a pothole is created. So someone walks up, they see it, they recognize, oh, this was just created from frozen elements. They throw out some asphalt, they cover it up, they check the box, they move on to the next one because they got 108,000 of them to do. But every once in a while, they come up to a pothole and they recognize this was not caused because of frozen water that expanded there's something else happening underneath. What's amazing is in the city of Chicago, 2017, a 72-year-old man was driving and a pothole became a sinkhole and he had the ride of his life. He was okay, he was fine, but multi-million dollars worth of damage as this entire street gave way. Here's what I want you to know, is every one of you in this room has potholes. And if you don't address your potholes, they can become sinkholes and they will cause collateral damage in your family to your integrity and it will give you moments to miss out on what God wants to do in you what's amazing is one man Mordecai not bowing down kneeling to Haman he gets so triggered it actually gets so close to a pothole that he doesn't want to actually deal with so that pothole quickly becomes a sinkhole and he fabricates a story to try and create a genocide which has gotten me thinking that I actually believe that every day we are being triggered the news triggers us our spouse triggers us, our kids trigger us, our, our neighbors trigger us. Twitter definitely triggers us. We're being triggered constantly like never before. And what's amazing 
my counselor will say is everywhere we go is just a family reunion. And we're running up to old wounds that have never been tended to. And all of a sudden, somebody gets close to one of these old wounds that we have not tended to. And there's all of this energy within us that has to go somewhere. And instead of staying on point to the mission, the missio day, the whole gospel, we find ourselves almost getting circumvented in the moment. And we have all of this stuff happening within us that has to go somewhere. And so I want you to understand something, is when you get triggered, there's three places we often go. The first one is we go to hideouts. This is the story of the garden. The man and the woman mess up, they're feeling shame. What do they do? They go and hide. It's the first game of hide and seek in the scriptures. And they're hiding behind a tree and God's like, where are you? And he's not like, where's their GPS location? I have no idea. He's God, he knows where they are. But he's like, where is the person I created? Where are you? Where are you? And since that moment, we're so much better at hiding than seeking. So much better at hiding and deceiving, trying to minimize where we go to soothe and escape. And for some of us, we have socially acceptable escapes. Just binge watch Netflix eat some ice cream, eat another thing of ice cream. We will go charge our credit card, buy something we don't need. Like we, we have all of these hideouts and all we're trying to do is to place this negativity somewhere. And then underneath that, they're socially unacceptable. And for some of us, we have that in this space. And we've been triggered and we don't know what to do with it and so we run to something. It's unacceptable. All the while, all we're trying to do is just cover up what we're feeling, the scared, the I'm out of control, I'm lacking trust, or the pain, wounds, or trauma that we experience as kids. And when we get triggered, we go to hideouts, but sometimes when we get triggered, we go to insecurity. And this is where we create false stories about ourselves. And we do this in two ways. We power down. I'm just not good. Nobody understands me. If only, if anybody just understood what was on my plate. I'm always messing up. And all of the shame and the shoulds just rest on us. We don't see ourselves created in the image of God. We just see the past, the shame, and the feelings, and like Eugene beautifully said, we sometimes give so much credence to that feeling and we believe it as gospel. We just power down. But sometimes in our insecurity, we're not powering down, we power up. We're losing control, and all of a sudden we're like, I gotta get this room back. We start to power up. I don't care who's in my way, I'm gonna let them have it. And it could be stonewalling them, and I'm silent, but I'm powering up. I could dig my heel in the ground and be defensive and just push someone away. Or some of us have even experienced the pain of verbal abuse and the pain of physical abuse. And all that is is insecurity based on some trigger 
and we were the respondent, a person that that just channeled all of that towards. And a pothole becomes a sinkhole. The other crazy one, though, is that I'm watching is that people find themselves getting triggered. And it's not the hideouts that they go, and it's not the insecurity, power down or power up. It's the narratives. See, the triggers are where we get set up and sets us off on some place where we got to put this angry past and sadness and shame and trauma. And it's either going to go to the hideouts where we escape and look to soothe or where the insecurities, the false stories we tell about ourselves or the narratives, the false stories we create about others. They're all like that. They all think that way. Us versus them. They're always doing that kind of thing. And you watch how this plays in regards to politics, in regards to race, in regards to different denominations, in regards to gender. And you see this. And the false narratives. And literally, it's all a bunch of people staying in the familiar in their own echo chamber, soothing, insecure, projecting, and creating a bigger and bigger and bigger sinkhole. But there's another way. John Wesley, he talked about three stages of grace. In a famous sermon that he gave, he talked about different stages of grace, and I think oftentimes when we talk about grace, we think about grace as that free gift that allows us to get into heaven. Brendan Manning, beautifully broken human used to talk about how all is grace. John Wimber, who is the leader and founder of the Vineyard Movement, would say, the way in is the way on. The way into a relationship with Christ is grace, and the way on is grace. But Wesley had three stages of grace. The grace of God at work, the grace of justice, justice and justification of like us being made right because of what Jesus did on the cross and then sanctifying grace. And this was God's grace and God's spirit at work to make us whole, holy, and spiritually healthy. And it is an archaic word. I love what like Eugene was talking about today is when we remove holiness or justice or love and for many of us, we've removed sanctification. But sanctification is the process at which we address our potholes where, so that they don't become sinkholes, where we address our potholes, our wounds, childhood trauma, the pain, the struggle, so that we don't escape in hideout. And this is like, if you think about when the, the golden calf was created, that's all, that's all the Hebrew people did. Moses is up on the mountain, and they're all nervous. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. And what do they do? Just give me something to put this shame or fear or sadness towards. And they create an idol. And I've done that with Cold Stone Creamery. I've done that with sports. I've done that with buying things. I've done that with a handful of other socially unacceptable and spiritually unacceptable ways. 
And all of it starts because of a pothole, because I got triggered. Friends, what grace wants to do is grace wants you to actually see yourself in process, but not just the process that you just stay inward, but the process where you step out and actually step into discomfort. You can't learn to actually bear the fruit of gentleness and kindness unless you're around difficult people. How do you learn how to be gentle and kind? Unless you're around people who need to experience gentleness and kindness. You need to be around people who are triggering you and you're like, whoa, what is going on? A number of years ago, there's a staff member who reminded me of someone who deeply wounded me. I come home, I tell my wife about this, and I'm looking for some backup, and my wife goes, isn't God so kind? I'm like, what? I need your backup. I need some good Christian marriage gossip about this person. She's like, no, 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 God's so kind. I'm like, what do you, what do you mean? She's like, Steve, you, you haven't had the courage to actually honor this pain in your life and in your childhood. And God's so kind that he keeps bringing people into your life until you honor that truth. And until you can honor that truth, you're gonna miss out on what God wants to do in you and through you and with you and for you. Here's what I need you to know. If you find yourself on Twitter, in the marketplace, at the water cooler, on the five or the 101 or the 405 or the 91 or the 605 or the 105, the 17, the 110, any California highway, and you experience being triggered, just for a moment, would you step back and go, God, what's going on? Would you get so curious of where you tend to go? Oh, this is where I tend to go and hide out. I go tend just to like leave my wife and go sit in my garage in my man cave and I just, I just sit by myself. You're just escaping the pain. But what if, what if you actually could get curious and go, what's the thing beneath the thing? And begin to lean in and go, God, what? might you want to make more whole, holy, and spiritually healthy within me? We're watching a world that is just triggered. And then all of a sudden, hideouts, insecurities, and narratives are being thrown at each other, and it's, it's cynical, it's critical. And I just sit back and I watch it and I just go, Man, it's a whole bunch of childhood pain lashing out at other childhood pain. And what if shame wasn't the great motivator? What if grace was? And when grace is the motivator, then all of a sudden you know what God has done for you so that when the Spirit of God whispers and says, I need you to go to Samaria, you're like, I trust you. And when you find yourself getting triggered, instead of choosing a hideout and insecurity or narrative, you can step back and go, what grace do you want to do in me so that I can extend grace to another? I think our world would look so profoundly 
more like the kingdom that Jesus intended and dreamed was possible than what we see on the Nextdoor app, which is crazy. Or what we see on Facebook, which is crazy. What we see on Twitter. I think there's a better way. God, I pray right now that we'd be the kind of people that would be honest and human about how our actions can bewilder people. When we react, all we're doing, Lord, is just reenacting our pain. And God, I know that there's probably faces, there's probably situations that we can look back at in the last month or two months or three months where we were like, what? And why did I say that? God, I pray that we'd be the kind of people who would literally get curious. Not more shame, but curious. So what the origin of that pothole really is. God, I pray a prayer of protection that our potholes will not become sinkholes. That there won't be collateral damage for our kids, collateral damage for our church or our friends but that we would have the trust and dependency in you to take you at your word, that we can come to you broken, fractured, potholes, and allow you to do the healing, sanctifying work that grace wants to do in us, for us, through us, and with us. I pray that we'd locate where we go in hideouts or insecurities or narratives. And when we get triggered, we'd step back and say, what if grace had more control in my story? We love you, God. We love you, God. And may we be people who hear your voice and are willing to bear witness to those that we think are less than, can't stand, no desire to understand. And may, through grace, we be prepared for our eternal homeland, the new Jerusalem, heaven, heaven, heaven. We love you, Lord, and all God's people said, amen, amen.